Almighty and everlasting God, our Heavenly Father, we worship you today and we ask now that you would grant us the wisdom that we need from your Spirit to hear your words, that we would not be like the Israelites of old who did not hear, who did not see, who did not uh, bother to repent when the Lord spoke to them. And Lord, you give us um, great and difficult things to deal with in this morning's passage. We ask that you would not only give us understanding, but that you would give us the grace we need to put these things into practice in our daily lives. And we ask this blessing in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You can turn to page 853 if you're using a pew Bible as we continue um, with the Sermon on the Mount. For a number of weeks, actually a few months, We've been dealing with the Lord's Prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer. And we move on from there today, chapter 6, verse 14. Right at the end of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you openly. Now, obviously, this language of Father is, is still flowing from the Lord's Prayer. Because the Lord's Prayer, when I, I was raised Catholic, and we called it an Our Father. He said, you know, we'll go say an Our Father. You know, we call it the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer is a family prayer, remember. We're not allowed to urge unbelievers to pray this prayer. Because the term Father in the Scriptures is talking about God's covenantal relationship with His people. Unbelievers are under God's jurisdiction as their as His as their God is their creator. We have the benefit of calling him father. It's a kindly term. The same thing works in the real world. Um, I never called anybody dad except my own father. It doesn't make much sense to go to a next door neighbor and call him daddy. It's not in his family. The same thing works in the spiritual world. Unless God is your covenantal God. In other words, unless you're in the New Covenant, if you're not a Christian, then God is not, technically speaking, your Father. We have to realign our thinking in this part, because we have this understanding for the last hundred years or so of this, what uh, liberals call the, uh, the universal fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. In other words, uh, we are the world. Can we not just hold hands and sing kumbaya and just all get along? Well, no, that's really not the case. That's how it should be within a church, But that's not how it is with unbelievers outside of the world. We can work with unbelievers for any number of things. We can work with them against uh, abortion, for example, anything that's evil like that. But in terms of fellowship, in terms of what is represented a few weeks ago in the Lord's table, that's a family meal. That's a covenant renewal ceremony. And when we call God our Father, we're using covenantal language. And the covenant is not just vertical, us and God. It has to start there, but it has horizontal implications within our own families, within the church family, 
within the greater community, quite frankly. In other words, we can't be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. That's a cliche, but we know some people like that. All they do is um, think about God and they never do anything. I worked with somebody once who, um, uh, quite frankly, was a thief. Well, he didn't embezzle from the company, but he spent a lot of his time at his desk reading his Bible. Now, most of us would, would agree that reading your Bible is an important spiritual discipline. But if you're on the clock and getting paid by someone for X amount of minutes and hours, he wasn't getting paid to read his Bible. He can read his Bible on his lunch break if he wants. Perfectly fine. Constitutional right. But when you're getting paid to do a job, you don't open up your King James Bible and study it. it really, he's stealing he was doing something good, studying God's word, but he didn't realize that horizontally he was violating God's law because he was taking the boss's money and not giving back the labor that was implicit in the employment contract. We have the same problem. You do have responsibilities to each other. You may not like to hear that, but that is just the cold, hard facts. Each of you has a responsibility to one another. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. This goes against the American understanding of individualism. In other cultures, this idea that the community has responsibility to each other is part and parcel of their way of life, but we are so individualistic in our country that we have to fight against it sometimes. Because we're not in this alone. If, there are no Smiths here, if Brother Smith on this side of sanctuary is going through some type of uh, problem with his business, then Mr. and Mrs. Jones on this side of the sanctuary are supposed to be sharing in that suffering. They're supposed to be praying for the person. They're supposed to be doing what they can to encourage that person. And if indeed they can help that family financially, they have a responsibility to do that. The Lord's half-brother tells us this in James, does he not? He says, what good is your faith? This is a paraphrase. What good is your faith if your brother comes to you starving and destitute, in need of daily provisions, and you say, be warm and well-fed, go in peace? In other words, thank you for sharing that with me. I'll pray for you, brother and you have a pocket full of cash and are able to alleviate that person's uh, terror. And you have to remember, when James talked about some, someone being destitute, at that time, he meant that literally. They literally didn't have the food and clothes that they need. In our day and age, in our circle, none of us are destitute. We have food in our stomach. We have, obviously, we have clothes on our back. But we do have struggles. They might not be monetary. They might be physical. They might be uh, mental and emotional. But if we're going to be right with God, we've got to be right with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. If we listen to me very carefully, if you go to sleep for the rest of the service, that'll be wrong. But you really need to wake up right now. If you're not willing to get right with your brothers and sisters at the horizontal level, then don't ever dream of expecting God to answer your prayers at the vertical level. He won't do it. 
Because James says, how can you say you love God who you've never seen when you're not loving your brother who you actually can see? And this, these two texts that follow the Lord's Prayer point out to us that even though God is our Heavenly Father, that that family relationship has horizontal implications. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will forgive you. And then these chilling words. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Did you, did you catch that? If you want to be forgiven of God, then you have to forgive those who have sinned against you. It is not an option. It's not an option. You don't have any right to say, well, they've done that so many times. What did Peter, what did the Lord tell Peter? Peter, that bold, brash guy, he goes to the Lord, hey, Lord, if my brother sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? Seven times a day? Now, you have to get, try and get inside Peter's mind. Peter was bragging there, you know, hoping to say, well, I've done this seven times. He did this to me seven times today and I forgive him. <clears throat> it's kind of hard to brag in Jesus' presence. It doesn't work very well. Jesus says, no, up to 70 times seven. Multiplication, 490. Wow. It's very difficult to do something to somebody 490 times a day. You can try it, but it's pretty much going to take up all your waking 16, 17 hours. You're going to have to be doing the same thing continuously. And even that number, what does that mean? That when you get to 491, that the, the bargain's off? No, what Jesus was getting at is that no matter what they do, no matter how many times they do it, you still have to forgive them if they repent. You see... Forgiveness is not just a one-way street. It's not just a one-way street. If somebody is continually doing something wrong and they're unwilling to acknowledge it, if they're unwilling to come to you and say, I've done this yet again, then there seems to be a point where we say, well, okay, you know, I'm not going to throw my pearls before swine any longer. The Lord said that as well in the Lord's Prayer. Not in the Lord's Prayer, but in the Sermon on the Mount. If you've wronged somebody, you have a responsibility to go to them and not apologize. That's too easy of a phrase. You need to ask their forgiveness. It's not enough to say, I messed up again. You can talk like that to your best friends. I messed up again. Sorry. They understand you're repenting. But there's a big difference between going to somebody and saying, I've sinned against you. I've broken God's law in my relationship with you. Would you please forgive me? It's very different than saying, I I messed up. Cut me some slack. Give me a break. We use those terms. God doesn't cut anybody any slack. Right? God doesn't cut anybody any breaks. He killed his own son. There's no slack, no break there. We receive grace because of what Christ has done for us. He doesn't cut us slack. He does not let things slide. He keeps an account of everything, and we will have to give a reckoning someday in the future. I was visiting with uh, uh, someone, 
someone this week, and instead of nowhere, you know, we were just talking about things in general, and the person just kind of said, you know, Pastor, I wish people would remember that there's a day when there's going to be a reckoning. I thought, wow, that's, that's an old school word. You don't hear that too much, a reckoning. You know, you're going to have to going to have to give account for your thoughts, your words, and your deeds. You're going to have to give an account for your lack of forgiveness, your hard-heartedness. And frankly, the results of that are chilling. I can't really water this verse down very much. It's pretty easy to understand. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses, if your trespasses aren't forgiven, what, what's the result of that? If you're before God in a state of unforgiveness, unforgivenness, what's the next step? Where do you go? You go to hell. Perdition. Judgment. Sheol, the Old Testament would call it. Hades, the Greek would call it. Forgiveness is not optional. So I have to ask you, is there someone in your life that you need to go to and ask for their forgiveness? Or is there somebody that you need to forgive? Now, we all get hurt in life. People step on our toes. They slap us in the face, proverbially, hopefully. They break our hearts. We have to forgive them, no matter what they do. Do you realize how tall of an order that is? Do you realize how hard it is to really be a Christian? Do you realize that now that there are millions of people who think they're Christians that aren't? If this is one of the marks of being a Christian, then there's a lot of people on a lot of church rolls who are going to be brutally and abysmally surprised on that day of reckoning. What does Jesus say? Oh, there'll be many in that day that'll come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not heal the sick and raise the dead and perform all these miracles? And what does Jesus say? I'll say to you then, depart from me, you lawless ones, you workers of iniquity. In other words, there's going to be people on that day of reckoning that will be able to say to the risen Christ, I did all of this good stuff for you in your name. And he's still going to turn them away. That's scary. That's scary. Actually, scary is not the right word. Terrifying is the word. Have you ever used the phrase, oh, he's a holy terror? I've never heard that used for a little girl. It's always, always for a little boy. Oh, he's a holy terror. And we kind of use it as a compliment. You know, the boy's real active. Well, no, he's not. The little boys aren't holy terrors. God is a holy terror. God alone is holy. And God alone in himself is terrifying. It's only because of the blood of Christ that we can have any shelter from his wrath. From any shelter from his, from his, his presence. Whenever you see people come in contact with God in the Bible, they're not jumping up for joy. Have you noticed that? They're, they're, they're scared. They're on their face. Freaking out. Just saying, oh. What does Isaiah say? He sees this vision of the Holy One of Israel and he says, Woe, woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips amidst the people of unclean lips. 
He understood that he was in the presence of a being that he had no right to be in the presence of. That his deeds had forfeited that right. How many of us forget that? So I challenge you on this forgiveness issue. Is there someone in your life? They might even be dead. That hurt you a long, long time ago. You have to forgive them. You see, justice is in the hands of God. Forgiveness is our responsibility. And very often we want to be the meter out of justice, not realizing that's not our place. We like to get back at people, don't we? We don't like to get back. We say, I'm going to get even. Most of us don't like to get even. We like to, we like to win. So if you did this to me, then I'll do this and that to you, and then I'll consider us even. Steal $100 from me, I'll steal 200 from you, and we'll call, we'll call it an even. We'll call it interest. Our lives are filled with such sins. And quite frankly, stealing $100 is paltry compared to the damage we do to one another with our words and our lack of love and consideration. You realize how much damage we do to each other just on a daily basis, just through inconsideration? A lot. And do you realize how much that damage accrues over 20, 30, 40 years? It's a horrible price to pay. And it doesn't have to be that way, and it shouldn't be that way. So we are to forgive people what they have done to us that is an actual violation. Now, this is where we need to think a little bit. A lot of times we think that we need to forgive somebody for X, Y, and Z, when in reality they have not done anything wrong. A trespass in this context, in any context, is always a violation of God's law. So, if someone's hurt your feelings, that does not mean necessarily that they have sinned against you. If there's someone in your life, let's go back to the Smiths and the Joneses. You have Mr. Smith and Mr. Jones, and they work together, and they're both members of the same church. And Mr. Jones is doing things on the job that he's not supposed to be doing. And Mr. Smith goes to him and says, you know, Mr. Jones, this is wrong. You have to stop this behavior. You have to stop talking like this on the job. Hmm. Mr. Jones is not going to be happy about that. He'll feel wounded. His, uh, his, his pride will be hurt. You've hurt my feelings, Mr. Smith. Well, your feelings needed to be hurt. Remember what Paul said in that letter, the reading from 2 Corinthians that godly sorrow leads to repentance. Earthly sorrow, worldly sorrow leads to death. So when we tell our brothers and sisters, hey, you know, um, I think you were, you were out of line there. If they truly were out of line and their feelings get hurt, um, that's actually a good thing. Because that's God using his spirit to convict them of their sin. Now, if you say something to them and they're not doing those behaviors, then that's a sin on your part. In other words, you can't accuse someone of being a thief unless they're a thief. 
But if they are a thief, then you as a Christian have a responsibility to point that out to them. What happens in our lives is that we, frankly, we begin to act like um, children in a sandbox. And we get our feelings hurt over the silliest things. And we hurt people intentionally and unintentionally over the most pettiest things. You see this behavior in little kids. They get real angry over silly things. I touched my toy. Literally. It didn't take it. didn't break it. just touched it. I looked at it wrong. Put it in the wrong place. Just two inches off to the side. And kids go crazy. Touched my toy. Broke it. My life is ruined. Well, I'm not really. He just, he just kind of put his fingers on it and just moved it two inches off to the right or left. It's not the end of the world. We expect that from children because they have a childish perspective. Too many of us as adults have the same type of thing. Well, they, they, you know, they were mean to me. Maybe they were. Maybe they weren't. Maybe they actually were looking out for your spiritual welfare, pointing out something in your life. Was wrong. Now we all know people who are just—they—they, they, um, that's their mission in life, right? To point out everything that everybody else has to work on, and they have this tendency, this type of person, to never, ever kind of look in the mirror. They're very good at pointing out everybody else's sins, everybody else's failures, but they really have this gigantic blind spot in their rearview mirror, and they can never see that they might be doing things that are, quite frankly, worse. Now, we all have those blind spots. And if you're married, your spouse will hopefully point them out to you gently. Although, ladies, I give you permission to be... Well, be nice to your husbands, but be firm with them. Point out to them that you know, trash needs to be taken out, man. Could you please take the trash out? Be nice if the chicken bones didn't smell anymore. We need to forgive each other. On the flip side, we don't need to worry about impressing each other. Actually, we're forbidden from seeking to impress each other. That's what Christ is getting out with this teaching on fasting. It's not necessarily a teaching on fasting. Fasting, by the way, is a very neglected discipline in the modern Protestant church. Fasting is simply this, when you stop eating for a given length of time. Could be an hour, could be 24 hours, could be three days. Jesus fasted for 40 days. There are good biblical reasons to engage in fasting, not just physical detoxation, but good biblical reasons to fast. But that's not really the teaching here. Jesus isn't giving us the rules and regulation for proper fasting. What he's talking about is us trying to do things to impress other people. When you fast, notice he says when. He's assuming that the New Testament church will fast. Not if. When you fast, do not be like the hypocrites. Remember, a hypocrite it was a Greek actor. In the ancient world, ladies could not be actresses. So if you have a female lead in a play, well, you've got it. You have to have a man wear a mask to make him look like the woman. That's what a hypocrite was. It wasn't a bad phrase at first. It's just an actor. 
who's putting on a mask and playing a role. In the spiritual world, the hypocrite is someone who is playing a role for the benefit of those around them, and they don't really mean it. We all do know that Sean Connery really isn't James Bond, right? We do know that. He might be the best James Bond, but he's not really James Bond. He's an 82-year-old Scotsman. Okay? He's, he's, he's not James Bond. He's not even English. Okay? He's an actor acting a role. And sometimes young people, they look to these celebrities as if they really are those people. They're not. They're made of flesh and blood. They may have more money in the bank, but they're just actors. They're just actors or singers. They're playing a role. In the spiritual world, we're not allowed to do that. Sometimes when I was in sales, I felt like this. Because if you're in a, if you're in a really bad mood and you're a salesman, it doesn't really matter. You have to smile. You have to be nice to the people or they won't buy the product. And if they don't buy the product, guess what? You don't make any money. So no matter how badly you feel, you need to put on that smile and say, isn't it just a great day? It's a great day to buy a Toyota, isn't it? It's like, no, I have a, I have a 100 degree fever. I'd rather be home sleeping. But it's Saturday. I do 20% of my business this day. really just have to get my gumption up and go for it. You can't do that in the spiritual world. You have to do things to be seen by God. If you're doing your spiritual activities to be seen by men, you will have no reward from your Heavenly Father. Even forgiveness. There are a lot of people who make a big show of their forgiving nature, but they're doing it for the wrong reasons. They're doing it so that other people will see them and say, my oh my, isn't she gracious? My oh my, isn't he a forgiving man? So you you can do the right thing for the wrong reasons and receive no heavenly reward from God. You have to do the right thing at the right time for the right reason. That's often very difficult. It's often very difficult, particularly when we're talking about our relationship with other people. And that's what these texts are dealing with right here. How we relate to others. Are we willing to forgive them? Are we willing to seek their forgiveness? Are we willing not to be worried about what they think of us? Are we willing to do the right thing even if they don't think highly of us? We can't do fasting in order to be seen by them. We are when we to do these things, Jesus says, because there were people who fasted, and he's really getting at the Pharisees here, who when they fasted, they would intentionally make themselves look worn out and haggard so that everybody would say, oh, I guess he's on a fast. Look at him. He looks kind of disheveled. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. If you're doing something spiritually to God, because fasting doesn't help you with your horizontal relationships, if you tell somebody I'm fasting, they're going to think, fantastic, have fun. Uh, I won't eat donuts in front of you. Fasting is a relationship vertically to God. You can't do those vertical spiritual disciplines in order to receive some type of recognition at the horizontal level. You can't. If you're doing something to God, you do it to God and you let Him see it. And 
See, what this gets at is that God truly is the provider of your daily bread. Remember the Lord's Prayer is just a few verses before that. God has got to be the only one you really, at the end of the day, he's only his opinion that you care about. Yes, you love your wife, you love your husband, you love your children, but your first duty is to God. Your first duty is to please him. And if you seek to please him, then you will be trying to do the right thing at the horizontal level because it's impossible to please God when you're being nasty to your children when you're being disobedient to your parents, when you're being dishonoring to your wife, when you're being dishonoring to your husband, etc., etc., etc. You can't. The relationships are, are joined. Now, you can have a good horizontal relationship and no relationship whatsoever with God vertically, but if you do have a relationship with God as a Christian vertically, then what's at horizontal level had better be up to snuff. You can't impress people and you can't hold grudges. You can't seek to impress them. This calls for humility because we realize that God has given us certain gifts. He's given us certain provisions and we're not to lord it over people. Do you realize how many people within the church spend their entire lives trying to impress those around them? I must confess that I've never really understood that. My family is very, um, um, they're very New Jersey. They really, they, they don't really care what other people think about them. Now, at, at times, that, that crosses over to the level of rudeness. It does. They're so blunt and so open. Pretty much everybody in my family, you know exactly where you stand with them every moment of every day. Now, that's a very nice thing. But sometimes it can come across somewhat caustic and somewhat um, overly blunt. It doesn't fly in many places except northern New Jersey, really. So I've never really understood what it meant to walk around your whole life trying to impress people. It never really seemed to make much sense to me. I mean, if you don't like me or you don't care for me, unless you're... Unless you're um, really involved in my life or signing my paycheck doesn't really matter because you know I want police officers to think nicely of me if they stop me you know for you know, a traffic violation but people on the street I don't, I don't know you that's not necessarily a good attitude but the other attitude isn't good either to walk around continuously trying to seek the, the favorable impression of other people outside of the fact that it's slavery it's slavery to be the opinion of, uh, you're a politician then. Just saying all types of things just to make a favorable impression on people. And eventually people figure out, mm, you're a politician, you're lying. Not that all politicians lie, but some of them have a tendency to talk out of both sides of their mouth. It's the nature of the business. Brothers and sisters, our relationships with others have got to be marked by the way we deal with God. We need to seek God's forgiveness and we can't impress God. No matter how good you are, you can't impress him. He's not, he's not, he's not easily impressed. He's not very impressed with Job. He wasn't impressed with David. He wasn't impressed with Abraham. He was impressed by the actions of his son. 
He's not impressed by anything anybody in this room can do, myself included. We fall short of God's glory. So if we know that we can't impress God, then what does it matter if we impress anybody else? It really, it's seeking an audience that doesn't matter as much. So I urge you to think of your relationship with God and allow your relationship with God to be one of freedom. And that freedom will then overflow to your relationship with other people. And if you have somebody in your life that you need to forgive, then today is the day you need to do it. Because tomorrow might not be here. It really is just that simple. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, we ask you for the grace to forgive those who have wronged us and for the grace we need to live for your glory and for your approval and not anyone else's. In Christ's name, amen.